The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. You can support the show by clicking on the donate button on the website or in the show notes. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. The smartphone has done a lot to change photography. But I think the most important thing it's changed is how people are introduced to the world of photography. The convenience and portability of the phone has made it possible for anyone to discover the joy that can be had by seeing and making photographs. And despite the fact that the same device introduced the world to selfies, well, there's always a price to be paid, there are people out there right now making amazing work who might not have otherwise if it weren't for the camera that you can slip in and out of your pocket. You just look through Instagram and you'll see countless of photographers whose work doesn't come from a DSLR or a mirrorless camera, but whose photographs are as good, if not better, than people who own the latest and greatest in camera gear. David Ingraham is a talented photographer who began his photographic explorations with a traditional camera, but who now makes the camera phone his weapon of choice, and in my opinion, his images are nonetheless for it. His photographs are wonderful to look at, not because of the camera that he's used, but because he has what every photographer needs to have to be exceptional, and that's vision. Well, David, welcome to The Candid Frame. I'm really excited to, to have the chance to, to talk with you. I really enjoyed seeing your work uh, uh, last last month or so. And, uh, you know, I've been really looking forward to having a chance to, to talk to you about your work. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I've been a big fan of your show for a while, so glad we're finally able to uh, make this happen. You know, what's interesting about you is that uh, you came into photography in your 30s and you actually started as a, as a musician. Uh, what, and you're a drummer, is that right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so when, how old were you when you started, you know, picking up the, picking up the sticks? Well, um, I remember probably around fifth or sixth grade back in Michigan where I grew up. Um, coincidentally, both my best friends had drum sets and I didn't. So I'd, whenever I'd go over to their house, I'd always say, oh, come on, man, let me play your drums. You know, I just sort of taught myself some beats. And then by the time I was a freshman in high school, I joined my first band. It was through some class they offered at the school. Even then, I, I didn't own a drum set yet, but I just knew I wanted to play drums. So I, I was actually playing the, the bass player's younger brother's kit <laughs> in that band. And uh, ended up saving up for a kit uh, with a paper route. But I think a real uh, turning point for me, well, there were, there were two major turning points. And, and the first one, uh, interestingly enough, was the first concert I ever saw, which was Kiss back in uh, 1977. Oh, wow. Um, I, I saw Peter Chris with his giant riser and all the flash pots and his 827 drums. And I, I just thought, that's it. I want to do that. <laughs> and I, I remember the, the next evening at dinner time saying, mom, dad, I want to be a drummer. And they're like, that's nice, Dave. Anyways. Uh, and they carried on with their conversation. I don't think they realized how serious I was. But then the first 
concert I ever did was um, in that band I mentioned when I was a freshman in high school. And we, we, we would uh, basically rehearse the same four songs for like half the year or, or the first quarter of the year or so. And then we'd do a school assembly. And I remember doing that show and just being like intoxicated by the experience. You know, I remember riding my bike on my paper out afterwards and just thinking that was awesome. <laughs> and I, I was just, I was hooked, you know, so I just pursued, started getting in bands as I, you know, as high school went on, you know, I was, I think by the time I was a junior, I was telling myself, this is what I'm going to do. No matter what, I don't care if I got to starve. I'm going to be a musician one day. That was just, I got it set in my mind. So somehow I actually pulled it off. <laughs> when you go back to that moment, that, that first performance, you say it's awesome. What, tell me exactly what it felt like. What was, what was so awesome about it? What were you feeling? Well, it, it's, a, it's a total adrenaline rush. And it's, this, it's the same thing that keeps a performing musician doing it year after year because you get addicted to it. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, I'm not a real thrill seeker type. I, I don't do crazy sports. I don't ski. I don't do anything like that. But, you know, for me, just getting on stage behind a kit and just the, the adrenaline rush of that, especially if it's in, in front of a large audience and you're, you're getting that sort of symbiotic, you know, feedback of energy. It's just, it's the best drug I know. And you know, it, it keeps you coming back for more. It's why, you know, I, I've been doing this professionally for going on 20 years and I don't, I'm no less excited to play a show than I was when I was a kid. And to be able to say that after I've been doing it for long, as long as I have been is that's pretty, pretty cool, you know, but you know, there, there's, there's fear involved as well. You know, I mean, it's, there's performance anxiety and fear of failure and, you know, you, 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 as a drummer, there's this big responsibility weighing on you because you're basically holding the whole thing together. You know, the, the lead singer can flub up a few lyrics or something or, or you know, the guitarist can break a string and, you know, you know the, the train keeps rolling. But if the drummer <laughs> screws, like the, if the drummer like flips the beat or something, it, it's it just kills the whole thing. So you know, there's a certain responsibility there. So it's like all of this combined, like fear and excitement and fun. And, you know, it's, it's becomes an addiction really. Well, tell me more about that, about, you know, being basically the spine of a, of a band. I'm not a musician. Uh -huh. I enjoy music. Uh, that whole idea, as far as the drummer sort of holding everything together, tell me more about that. What, what are you doing back there that, that helps keep everything unified, that keeps it moving? You know, I was actually thinking about this earlier. I, I mentioned this in a, I did a David Allen Harvey, I did a photo essay that got on David Allen Harvey's Burn Magazine website. And I, I mentioned how as a drummer, you know, your title is timekeeper, you know, which is kind of a daunting title, you know, the keeper of the time, you know, and, you know, it's your job to hold down, not just, um, set the right groove at the right tempo, but to hold it down, you know, to not fluctuate too much, to not speed up or slow down, and, you know, and of course the analogy in the essay was that it was a photographer where, you know, it's our, in our profession, we're, we're freezing time or, you know, capturing moments in time. But, 
you know, it's, um, it's ultimately in a, in a good band, it's everybody's responsibility. I mean, if you got a lousy bass player, it doesn't matter how good the drummer is. So it's, it's everyone's responsibility, but it's definitely most of the responsibility falls in the drummer's hands. And, you know, when I first started playing professionally, that was kind of daunting, just playing in clubs and playing sort of casual gigs. And then sort of overnight, I landed a pretty big name gig and got sort of thrown in the deep end. And here I was, you know, recording records and playing, you know, in front of really large audiences at times. And, you know, initially it was, it was really intimidating. It was, it was extremely exciting, but like I said, some of that excitement was fear-based <laughs> because, you know, it's, there's a lot at stake because, you know, if I, if I screw up the beat, if I, you know, somehow were to just drop the beat or flip it around or speed up the song or, you know, it's like, you can kill the whole thing. Interestingly enough, I've never really done that. You know, I, I make my mistakes here and there, but I've never like made some major mistake where I just screwed up a song. So a lot of the fear isn't really founded in anything, you know, psychology or insecurities, but mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's something I've had to learn to deal with for my whole career. You know, I'm, I'm better at it now just because I've played, I've got thousands of shows under my belt. So, you know, I can uh, basically get up there and know I'm going to get the job done. But in the early days, you know, the confidence wasn't really there. So let's talk about that fear when it comes to, to photography. You're not, you're not performing in front of an audience. You don't have other bandmates that you have to answer to. You're out there by yourself with a camera. Mm -hmm. But does fear play a role? Is it different when you're out there making pictures? Well, um, interestingly enough, I was thinking of that, thinking about that earlier today. Um, because of the type of photography I'm doing, or the fact that I'm doing it purely for my own self, it's it's a purely a creative endeavor at this point. In other words, I'm not working for a client. It's a actually fear free, and that's one of the beautiful things about it. I can just kind of get lost in the experience and uh, have that beautiful thing that Gary Winogrand spoke of where you, it's, he said it's the closest thing to not existing. And I totally get what he meant by that, you know, where you can just sort of forget about your cares du jour and all the things that have been eating away at you and just get caught up in the whole process of seeking and, uh, you know, trying to nail that that shot. I think if I were to try and take photography on as a profession, that would change everything. I think the second I was working for a client and there were certain expectations, that's when fear would <laughs> come into the picture. And I think that's one of the reasons, it's not the main reason, but it's one of the reasons I've shied away from uh, trying to, uh, you know, get more gigs as a photographer um, because, you know, I'm already paying the bills with the music photography right now. It's just, it's such a liberating, you know, sort of form of therapy for me where I can just kind of get lost in the process and not worry about satisfying some, somebody else's needs. So, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to pursue it on any sort of professional level. And that's the main reason. Um, you know, I, I, 
supplement my income with uh, the photography, whether through print sales or uh, you know workshops. But that's that's about as far as I go with that. You were you mentioned that you kind of taught yourself how to play, play the drums, mm-hmm. and so you're primarily self-taught. Is that right? Well, no. Initially, I was self-taught for okay. the first quite a few years back in Michigan. I was self-taught, and you know, I, I kind of took pride in that for a while. I thought that was cool. And then one day I realized I was just being an idiot because I was holding myself back. I I basically hit sort of a ceiling as far as the progress I was making as a drummer. And that's when I kind of grew up a bit and thought, you know what, a few lessons aren't going to hurt you. Um, It's a good thing I started thinking along those lines because I started studying with a uh, local drummer in East Lansing, Michigan, um, that I had taken a class with at LCC, a community college drum class when I was 18. So I run into him years later at a music store and I say, hey, you know anyone teaching? And he said, I I do, as a matter of fact. Turns out the guy lives like a few blocks away from where I was living. Start studying with him. He turns me on to this uh, brochure about Musicians Institute in Hollywood. And he says, hey, I like to turn on a lot of my students to this um, because a few of them have actually I've sent them out to L.A. to go to this school. And, you know, the timing for that couldn't have been more perfect because I was really at a point of frustration. Um, I was I've been sort of spinning my wheels after high school and playing in a few bands around town with good friends, but it wasn't going anywhere. And I knew that this was something I wanted to pursue. It was a dream, but I, I'd, I'd literally like wake up in the middle, middle of the night and, and like have visions of myself at like 35 years old waiting tables. <laughs> and I just thought, I, I want to do this for a living, but I didn't know how to make it happen. So this opportunity arose. I spoke with my dad about it. He was very generous because I hadn't gone through college at that point. Long story short, I moved to L.A. I go to a music school. Uh, It was an intensive one-year percussion program and basically got my ass whipped into shape. I I learned a whole lot, you know, everything from reading music to, uh, you know, Afro-Cuban and Brazilian rhythms and all sorts of stuff, and which basically prepared me for the career I've had. Um, Had I not done that, there's no way any of this would have happened for me. Um, and, and I can even trace back to the opportunities that I've had um, as far as my career. It all started at that music school. You know, a bass player friend uh, after school said, hey, you want to join this band? I'm in this Latin rock band. Join that band. Then that band led to another band and that to another gig. You know, so it's just been like this domino theory of opportunities. When I, when I look back in retrospect, it all stemmed from that one fateful day. <laughs> How do you feel that the learning process that you had as a musician helped or uh, helped you when it came time for you to learn and practice photography? It's a good question. I'm not really sure because the photography, there was no pressure to learn. It was, it was really obsession-based. Uh, the photography, as I mentioned, it's always been something fun on the side. But as I started to take it more seriously, I became more and more passionate about it and then more and more obsessed about it. So the the learning curve, it was just sort of a natural 
thing. It wasn't like I have to learn this in this X amount of time because there's going to be a test or something. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. although obviously when you study uh, and go to school, it teaches you s- certain study skills or habits. I, I don't feel like that was the sort of thing I was applying to my growth as a photographer um, because that growth seemed to be more of an organic thing that just happened in, in over time, you know. You know what's interesting about your work is that um, in your story is that you started off you you purchased a DSLR at one point, but mm-hmm. then you sort of segued into using uh, a camera phone as your primary uh, picture uh, taking device, and and for a lot of people it's the reverse. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true, and that and that's actually one cool thing that came out of the mobile photography movement is I know a lot of people who got bitten by the photography bug through the iPhone and then went sort of backwards, like you say, and bought a proper SLR or whatever. So um, that's cool in that sense. Um, for me, it actually worked the opposite. Um, I'd been shooting with an SLR for years, you know, probably 20 years or so. And I eventually started shooting with Holgas and some plastic cameras. You know, I dabbled with that whole movement. Then eventually went digital, started shooting with point-and-shoot digitals, et cetera. But, yeah, I I got the iPhone, and it just it took over. It basically just took over my whole photographic approach, and it's it's all I've shot with for uh, five years or so, since 2012. So what is it about using the phone as opposed to using a camera that, that fascinates, fascinates you so much? There's a lot of things. Um, the convenience of it, uh, just you know, with all the traveling I do, I've been looking for a small travel-friendly camera. So uh, once I started seeing the, the sort of quality images that were being done with the iPhone, I don't mean just quality like pixel-wise, but I was seeing some really creative work being done. So I realized it was a creative tool. I realized I can have this thing on me at all times, which means I can be capturing images that I might miss otherwise. And th- once I got the thing, then I, the, all the different apps, I mean, I've got probably, um, you know, last I checked, like over 130 apps that, you know, photography-related apps alone, I probably only use about a tenth of that, that, if that. But, you know, I, I became app-obsessed because it was like having Photoshop in the palm of my hand because all these different apps all seem to be good at least one at one thing. But combined, it's sort of like Photoshop. And then, you know, Instagram became part of the picture, you know, the, the whole social media thing and being able to connect with like-minded photographers all around the world. And you know, have this, what I consider a, a international or w- worldwide exhibition space in the palm of your hand. That's how I view it, because I still think it's one of the best ways of getting your work seen by a, a huge worldwide audience. So I, I take it very seriously. And the fact that, you know, here, here, here it is, you've got Magnum photographers on Instagram as well. So obviously, they're taking it seriously as well. So it, it was really the whole package. It, it, I think I had been unconsciously searching for something like that without really knowing it. And when I found it, I was just like, yep, this is it. <laughs> this is the camera for me. You said that at first you were document, documenting your life and your travels. When did you start 
exploring the street as as opposed to just simply documenting your own life? It was it was definitely pre iPhone, but you know, years ago, I, I when I was shooting with the SLR, I, I'd hop the metro, head downtown, and I I'd, I'd, I'd shoot street photography, but I I got uh, frustrated re- really easily. I'd get discouraged and, and, you know, maybe not shoot for another three months or so. Um, I just hadn't really found, hadn't found my voice, hadn't found really what I wanted to do with the genre. Um, but you know, I, I've been shooting street photography on and off for years, but once again, once I got the iPhone and got on Instagram, I started to see the work of re- really talented street photographers um, I mentioned some of them in that presentation we did together, but, uh, you know, Kochi was one of them. Um, I've got a friend in uh, Istanbul, Elif uh, Gulen, um, just to name a few. I, I was seeing some incredible work being done, and it was very much of the, along the lines of the type of work I've been trying to do, but not as successfully. So a lot of the work I was seeing really helped me to sort of find my footing it's sort of like especially Kochi's work I, I really I connected with his work so strongly and I sort of I, I'd see his work and I think okay I get it this is how you do it <laughs> you know this guy's nailing it and I see why and how and so I started I, I didn't head out to copy Kochi because the last thing I wanted, wanted to do was be a Kochi copycat but I basically learned a lot just by watching how he does what he does. And it helped me to sort of find my footing and help me to sort of start shaping my own style and my, my own voice, you know. And for people who don't know uh, who Kochi is, it's, it's, we're talking about Richard Kochi Hernandez, who uh, is a journalist uh, and an educator up in San Francisco. I interviewed him for our show several years back. Uh-huh. Um, but his 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 Instagram feed is 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 nothing short of phenomenal, and it's not just straight ph- photography. When people think about street photography, he's doing a lot of manipulation of of those images in not just one but several apps. No, oh, absolutely. He he does something that uh, he refers to as app stacking, um, <laughs> where, where you're you're working on an image in one app and then you bring it into another app and then another app. Um, I think he, he does that a little less these days, as do I. But there was a, a, a period in the early uh, mobile photography, you know, phase or, or whatever, when app stacking was the thing, and, and he he played a big role in that. But um, sadly, he he a couple of December's ago just like wiped his entire Instagram feed and disappeared for a while and then started over again. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's still doing great work, but uh, his, his old Instagram feed was, there were just some incredible gems in there. I would frequently visit it and, you know, sometimes start at the very bottom and work my way up to the top because you could watch him develop. It's not like he just came straight out of the gate being the coachy that we know now, you know, so you, I, it was fascinating and inspiring for me to actually be able to watch the development as an artist for him. But fortunately, I have his book downtown that has a lot of the best work from that first feed. So um, I'm able to have that for posterity's sake. So when you're out there on, on, on the street and you're and you're looking around, seeing what you're going to make a photograph. What's your thought process like? Are you looking for sort of a really good sort of individual st- uh, still, a really good 
street photograph that has really good bones from which you can work with? Or, or is there some other pro- thought process that's going through your head when you're out there? Are you, are you looking for images where you have particular effects in mind that you're hoping to be able to apply to an image? What, what, what's the story there? No, I, I pretty much um, always shoot with the same. Uh, I, I shoot with Hipstamatic a lot, which is an app that gives you sort of an old uh, analog feel and you can, you know, switch lenses and film combinations. But after, you know, years of downloading countless film and lens combinations from them and giving them a lot of money, (laughs) I I finally reached the point where I I pretty much have one lens and film combo that I use all the time. It's a black and white combo. Um, I shoot with that and I shoot with pro camera, which is an unaltered gives you an unaltered image. That's what I shoot my color images with. But when I'm out shooting, I'm really just in search of a good photo. And for me, that means largely it starts with great light. If the light is flat, I tend to have trouble seeing photographically. Um, if, if it's a cloudy day in a sort of brooding way. I, I actually find that very inspiring. I've, I've gotten some decent shots in Ireland in, in weather like that. But for the most part, I've learned to embrace the harsh, bright light of Southern California to the point where I actually, you know, it took me a while to learn how to work with that. But once I learned how to work with it, I now really love it. So I'm seeking out that type of sort of dramatic light and shadows. First and foremost, I'm seeking out a geometric background maybe, and I'm I'm seeking out what I frequently refer to as clarity amongst the clutter because there's, you know, as you well, you know, as well as anybody, you know, one of the great challenges of street photography is there's just constant visual chaos everywhere and you're Mm -hmm. getting you know, false attachments and you're getting like, you know, looks like a, you know, stop signs coming out of the back of a person's head. So the the perpetual challenge is to try and find enough clarity to where you can, you know, get people to step into the scene and have there not be all these visual distractions going on. So, you know, I'm I'm frequently looking for just a a sort of uncluttered backdrop with some nice light. And then I'll, I'll just plant myself there and just hang out. Sometimes I'll hang out for half an hour or more and just wait, you know, wait for someone, just a character to step onto the stage, so to speak. You know, hopefully it'll be an interesting character. (laughs) Do you go out and create a body of work and then later think about which ones you're going to process or do you immediately get to work on, on applying a bunch of different effects to the images? Um, as Eric Kim puts it, um, he, he mentions chimping, you know, that uh, term where, where you're looking at your shot every time after you get it. I, mm-hmm. I definitely, since I come from a film background, I, I, I avoid chimping. I wait till I get home and then I dig through the, you know, countless images I got that afternoon. And if I'm lucky, there's two decent ones. You know, that's kind of my record. I'd love to tell you, I go out there and just kill it every time. But on the average, if, if it's a good day, I'll get two to three pretty good shots. Um, those ones will be the first ones I'll work on. And I'll either, if it's a good straight out of camera shot, I, I purely, I'll take it into Snapseed. I'll heighten the tonality. I'll dodge and burn and, and just sort of work on it in a dark room sort of sense. Um, I'll even crop if necessary. Those I just post as is. The more 
app stacking, experimental, even composite based work I do, that usually comes a little later. Um, that usually comes, it stems first of all, a lot of times from frustration because I'm traveling so much that I'll be stuck in a plane or airport or van and, you know, wanting to shoot, but my schedule is not allowing me to. So that's when I'll go digging through images that have been sitting on my phone for months, maybe even a year. And I'll sort of revisit them and I'll look at them with a fresh eye and I'll think, hey, wait a minute, what about this one? What if I were to drag this through this app and then do this? And, uh, you know, a lot of the times it leads to nothing. Um, it's, it's just a creative exercise. On a good day, I'll have like a sort of eureka moment and just stumble upon something and go, wow, I didn't expect that to happen. And that will send me down like a, a, a whole creative path. And I'll end up with an image that I hadn't e even foreseen, you know, when I started. So they're, they're two very different processes, and they're both stemming from these two very different sides I have. I've got a straight-out-of-camera, decisive-moment side. You know, I totally come from the Henri Cartier-Bresson, you know, uh, Kurtesh W. Eugene Smith school. But I've also got this experimental side that... Uh, I need to keep happy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm constantly sort of fluctuating between the two, um, depending on, you know, circumstances and whether I'm able to get out and shoot or not. Well, your two, your two different sides are very distinctive looks in terms of your black and white and your, and your color. Tell us about, it's a little bit of compartmentalizing, but, but t tell me about, you know, what you're pursuing with each of those you know, different types of work. I mean, because you, like you've just said, you're discovering it after the fact. But you know, what are you what are you looking for? I mean, what what tells you? Okay, this is going to be a great black and white, and this is going to be a great color. Like I say, I shoot with a particular hipstamatic combo that uh, shoots in black and white. So it's sort of like shooting with black and white film. What you get, you're stuck with. Um, however, with the latest version of hipstamatic, you now they give you the raw shot and you can go back and change lenses and films. So that's actually really cool. Usually if I'm shooting with pro camera, which is a really great app that gives you control over separate control over exposure and focus and lets you adjust the exposure and everything that is, if I'm shooting with that, I'm frequently thinking at least I'm going for a color shot, but I'll, I may very well may end up thinking it's, a better black and white shot. Generally speaking, I mean, basically a few years back, I just said, you know what? I, I want to just focus on black and white. It, it had been my main passion to begin with. I come from a, a darkroom background. So, you know, I liked the consistency that I would see in Kochi's feed or Ellis feed where you'd pull it up, uh, their, their Instagram feed, you'd, you'd pull it up and it was just all black and white work. I thought there was a, a, a power to that. It, it just looked good. And so it really got me thinking along those lines. I just thought, you know what? I, I want to focus mainly on black and white, build up a strong body of black and white work, and maybe establish a reputation as, you know, the black and white guy. Because I, I think it's important for every photographer to do that. At some point, I think you have to decide, you know, uh, Mary Ellen Mark, you know, she's shot in color, but we mainly think of her as a black and white photographer. You know, Saul Leiter, he shot in black and white, but he he's, will be remembered mainly as a color guy. Alex Webb, you know, color. So 
I think it's important at some point as a photographer to say, you know what, I'm going to just do this. This, I'm going to be that guy and just build up a strong body of work in one or the other so that people will remember you as that. So if people think of your name, a certain look will pop into their head. It doesn't mean you can't be shooting in color and black and white, but I believe strongly in keeping them separate. If you're putting on a book, if you're presenting or submitting a body of work to something, a publication, whatever, I really believe strongly decide it's either all black and white or all color. So, you know, when I'm out shooting, um, long story short, most of the time I'm just shooting black and white images. I, I already know this is going to be black and white. Every now and then I'll look at it and go, hmm, wait a minute, that actually might be better in color. Interestingly enough, I just, for the first time in over a year, I, I'm posting a small series on my Instagram feed that is color. It's the first time I've done it in a while. It's in, I, I should say color, use that term lightly because it's very undersaturated. <laughs> I didn't want to, after all these, all this time of doing black and white, I didn't want to just come out of the gate with hyper saturated color work. But so, you know, I finally decided, you know what, I'm going to do a little color work. But for the most part, I'm just in black and white mode when I'm out shooting. Um, it's just sort of the way I'm, I've been thinking for the last few years. You know, the Instagram community is, is really amazing. And I'm kind of late to this game. But it's not only is the work amazing, but the, the relationships that people build on here um, is something that really intrigues me. And I'm wondering that... If you could share something about that part of it, because uh, you've mentioned you've drawn a lot of inspiration from people that are posting there. Mm -hmm. But can you talk to us a little bit about how you kind of developed the relationships and, and created sort of a dialogue between yourself and other people whose work you, you liked and admired? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I was fortunate enough to get on Instagram pretty early on. I think it was, I think Instagram came out in 2012 and Within six months or so, I could have the time frame wrong, but within a pretty short time, I was I was on there. And so, this these were the early days, so there weren't as nearly as many people. It wasn't so saturated, so it was a little easier then to sort of build relationships and get that visual dialogue going with photographers whose work you really admired. It's kind of a different time now on Instagram. Instagram's still a great place. Still a great place to see your, your get your work seen and see other great work, but unfortunately, I think the the camaraderie thing isn't quite what it used to be. Um, people don't quite spend as much time commenting and um, having back and forth, you know, sort of dialogue and bouncing ideas around. It's it's not quite like that, but in the early days, it was. So I was able to, like I say, build up some good friendships. And these are people all around the world. You know, I've got friends in Iran and friends in Istanbul and Rome, you know, so that, that itself is a, is a, an amazing, you know, uh, internet based phenomenon, but to be able to do it in a photography community sort of setting was, um, just incredibly inspiring for me because as I've mentioned before, you know, uh, pre-internet, you know, photography was kind of a lone endeavor. I'd spend late nights in the darkroom, which I really loved. 
because I'm, you know, I'm a kind of loner type. So I, I was fine with that. But, you know, as far as people seeing your work, you know, back in the day, you, you had to have a show or, or um, get a book published or something. So obviously the Internet has changed that entirely. But what Flickr sort of began, I, I really believe Instagram just took it to the next level um, as far as the immediacy of feedback and just the, um, you know, the, the international aspect of it, just the fact that you can have these fellow photographer friends on the opposite side of the planet who are, who are responding to your image that you posted like five seconds ago. You know, that to me is just an amazing phenomenon, you know, and it, it really fired me up and motivated me uh, in the early stages because I hadn't had that before. So, you know, once I realized, you know, people are watching, people are actually paying attention to my work. It really made me want to get out there and do the best work I could, especially when it was people whose work I really admired. So when you're out there shooting with the phone, you know, a lot of photographers talk about the idea of being invisible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of the reasons why people want to favor smaller and smaller cameras. And there's probably no smaller camera than than a phone. Mm -hmm, exactly. And, and I'm wondering, you know, how you feel about your presence in, in a public street where you're making photographs with that. Not just how you think you're perceived, but how do you feel when you're out there hunting for, for photographs? You know, once again, I got to stress that I come from the sort of Cartier-Bresson school where you're more of a, you know, quiet observer, you know, fly on the wall type. Um, I'm not, I was never the type to approach people. I don't go for street portraits or anything like that. So I'm definitely trying to approach street photography from a sort of inconspicuous, like you mentioned, invisible type of uh, approach. So, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I, I, I know my heart. I like to think my heart's in the right place. I do not set out to exploit anybody and or capture people in some sort of compromising position. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm basically just thinking, you know, I, I'm out there trying to capture life in the streets, you know, the poetry of life, however you want to put it. And I feel like that's a beautiful thing. And I feel like I have the right to do that. So, you know, I, I'm already in a kind of healthy headspace because I feel like I'm doing a good thing. I don't worry about, you know, offending people or something because I'm not, there's nothing offensive about my work. And I certainly hope there isn't, you know. So I certainly go for the sort of invisible approach. I, I have certain techniques like pretending I'm on, on the phone and as the subject matter gets closer, I lift it, shoot, put the phone back to my ear. You know, I've develop certain techniques that work for me. And then, you know, I'll turn around and sort of start walking around pretending I'm talking to somebody. Whatever I got to do to get the shot, you know. But, you know, some people may think that's that's sneaky, you know, that, like there's something ethically wrong with that. And I think that's nonsense, you know. If, if that were the case, then all street photography is ethically wrong and, you know, the genre should... You know, would have never happened if people were thinking along those lines. So, I hope that answered your question. No, no, it certainly does. <laughs> so, when when you're teaching people this, because I know that you've taught it at the LACP, mm -hmm. uh, you teach a class on using your phone to to make you know make photographs, mobile photography. What what's 
What do you think is the the important things that people need to remember, especially if they're coming to photography for the first time using a camera phone rather than a camera? That's a good question. Um, I try and find a real balance as far as what I'm teaching and I, the outline that I hand out. You know, I try and find a real balance between focusing on photography because I try and stress that that you know at the end of the day. The, the, the real camera is your eye and your heart and your, your mind. You know, I, I believe it was Cartier-Bresson who said something like that. So I, it's not about the phone, you know, in one sense. So I stress that. But then, of course, I have to stress the fact that it is about the phone because it's a mobile photography course. So I, I try and find a balance there. I, I don't claim to always know that I have. But so, you know, I, I do cover certain apps. And when we head out in the streets, I share certain techniques um, that I use in some of my favorite apps. And I, I tell the students to download these apps beforehand before coming to class. But, you know, interestingly enough, I've found that this sort of niche I've created for myself uh, sometimes kind of works against me because, you know, sometimes some of these uh, workshops I've done are, are more successful than others because it's difficult to... I've, I've found that it's difficult to get serious photographers serious about their mobile photography because mm -hmm. they may shoot with their iPhone for the fun of it. But when it comes time for serious pictures, they pull out their Fuji or whatever. But then it's hard on the flip side to get people who have just discovered photography through their phone to get serious enough about the photography, you know, as a true <laughs> art form, because I try and get them fired up the way I was when I was first discovering the work of the masters. And, and, and sometimes you can see him sort of glazing over. So, you know, the best students are the ones who are somewhere in between. I, I do one-on-one -on -one workshops as well. And there's one guy I've been teaching and he's, you know, he's a talented photographer, first of all, but he, he's done his homework, so we can, I can mention a certain photographer or a certain photo, you know, classic photo or something, and he'll know what I'm talking about. So we can, we have that connecting point with certain reference points. That's the, the ultimate type of student. So, you know, yeah, with, with some of these workshops, the first workshops I was teaching at a, a, a gallery here in town, the Perfect Exposure Gallery, I was doing, those were more post-processing uh, workshops. That one was called the iPhone Darkroom. I was showing my post-processing sort of darkroom approach to my images. Um, the one at LACP is a straight-up mobile street photography course. So, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to make it work. I've only taught one of those so far. When you take a look at your feed in Instagram and you look at where you started and where you are now, what, what are the things that surprise you in terms of how you've progressed and how you've changed as a photographer? First and foremost, uh, just the prolificness of my, my output of the last four years or so, because, you know, I wasn't, I was just sort of putting along up to that point. Um, in the last four years, I produced more work and much stronger work than I had a decade before that. So, you know, once I got, really fired up and bitten by the, the iPhoneography bug and really got set on the idea of street photography being my, my photographic mission, so to speak. The work just started flowing out of me. I mean, literally, in, in a way where it had never 
been the case before. So, you know, sometimes I'll be looking at my website or something and I, I think I did this you know, <laughs> because just the sheer quantity of work that I did, and I'm not saying it's all good. The vast majority of it's probably mediocre, but there's a lot of it. <laughs> and so just the fact that I, I, you know, went into full output mode like that and produced that much work has kind of been a shock for me because if I step back and sort of look at it in a detached perspective, I can hardly believe it was me, you know? And of course, just, you know, I, I sort of improved overnight exponentially. Um, I, I, I was a decent photographer before I got the iPhone. Um, some of the work was okay. Some of it was compelling. Some of it was crap, but once I got the iPhone and really sort of found my thing, I started just producing way better work than I ever had before. So, you know, even that, I look at it, I'm just like, man, what, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, I'm, you know, like you, like you mentioned, I, I didn't get serious till my mid-30s. I'm officially 51 years old now, and it took that long. You know, it wasn't until about four years ago that stuff really clicked and started to happen. So, you know, it was, it was a long journey, uh, an enjoyable journey, but a long one nonetheless. Um, but, you know, I mentioned on my website, uh, Paul Strand uh, said, he, in, in some quote, he says how he believes it takes a, someone uh, nine years to learn how to become a photographer. I don't know where he got that random number from, and he doesn't say a good photographer. He just says a photographer. So I, I don't know if he's just talking about the technical aspect. But, you know, it's, it took me about a little over a decade before I really started to sort of find my way. So I really think there's some truth to that. It it's, doesn't happen overnight, you know. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Because I'm a fan of your show, I knew that question was coming. So <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd love to, there's so many different photographers I could mention, and I'd love to give shout outs to some of my favorites on Instagram. But there's this one guy I've been somewhat fascinated with recently, and he is a Danish photographer. And here's where I'm going to completely butcher his name because I don't speak Danish, but it's something like, uh, Jakob Au Sobol, and he is, I believe, the youngest Magnum member presently. Um, but I just recently got a book of his at the recent L.A. Uh, book show, um, By the River of Kings, and the work is just uh, this visceral, gritty, tactile, in-your-face black-and-white work. Um, he comes from like the Anders Peterson School, um, I think he actually studied with Anders Peterson for a while, and they even had shows together. So the, the stylistic similarities are, are not a, a coincidence, but Sobol is like Anders Peterson on steroids. I mean, he, he takes it to the next level, and his images can be like disconcertingly voyeuristic because he gets in mm. so close when he's shooting, and he, he's doing off-camera flash you know, sort of Bruce Gilden style, but unlike Bruce Gilden, in many cases, he's actually having people pose for him. I, I found this out by watching a YouTube video. He, he approaches people 
and gets them to agree to sort of be their, his models. And he'll go to some intimate location or something and shoot these people at such close proximity. And, and sometimes it's like a young naked couple in bed and here he is hovering over them with a camera a foot away. So, you know, I'd love to be a fly on a wall and, you know, watch how he gets his subject matter to be that trusting and comfortable. Oh, I, I look know. forward to checking that out. Yeah, yeah. He, so it's, it's Jacob as in Jacob in Dutch. And his last name is S-O-B-O-L. He's actually on Instagram. But uh, you can find him. If you Google him, you'll, you'll see, find some videos on him. And he does some really, really exceptional monochrome work. Very cool. And where can people go to find out more about you? Well, there's my website, which is davidingram.com. It's Ingram spelled I-N-G-R-A-H-A-M, like Ingraham, but pronounced Ingram. I'm on Instagram, and that username's a little weird. It's dazed and confused, spelled confusingly. <laughs> so it's actually a D-A-Y-Z-D-A-N-D-C-O-N-F-U-Z-D. <laughs> and uh, that's where, you know, I post on a regular basis and I'm also on Flickr as well. So. And I'll have links for all of that in the, in the show notes. So, uh, great, great. Well, David, thank you, man. It was a real, real pleasure to learn more about you and your work. I mean, this, this stuff is nothing short of inspiring every time I, I look at it and oh, I'm glad to have so finally had the opportunity to get to know you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. I, I've been listening to the show for a long time and I, I want to thank you for what you bring to the table as far as what you're offering the photography community, because, um, it's of huge value and, um, you know, nobody else is doing it. Certainly not as well as you are. So I, you know, thank you for that. And hopefully you're going to keep doing it for a long time. <laughs> Thanks again for joining me. Please remember that you do make a big difference in our show. Take the time today to write a review in the iTunes store and make a small contribution to the show. It all goes a very long way. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. And our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.